beautiful Sunday morning, isn't it? Love this whole weekend. It's been great. I'm going to start this morning by reading from Psalm 99, verses 1 through 3. The Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. I want to repeat that last verse. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Let's pray. Father, we are coming this morning to you with open hearts. Uh, Father, it is our prayer that you would help us to hear that your spirit would so indwell us, Lord, that we as a body would understand your word intellectually, that we would grasp your word emotionally, and that through our commitment to you, Father, we would be inspired to live it every day uh, before those that need to see us as examples of you as a light in a lost world, uh, but Father, also to those that do know you as an inspiration to get even deeper. Thank you, Father, for your name. It is that which we cherish. And I pray, Father, that would be clear through our study today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are on the third of the Ten Commandments. We've been walking slowly in our series, Words to Live By, and uh, we are on uh, verse 11, and I'm just going to read that out loud. This is the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So what exactly is this third commandment? What is uh, Moses referring to here? Well, it's the word vain, as it's rendered in the English Standard Version. And it can mean empty, nothing, worthless, or to no good purpose. We are forbidden from taking the name of God or taking up his name or bearing the name, as the phrase could be translated, in a manner that is wicked, worthless, or for the wrong purpose. This doesn't mean that we have to avoid his name altogether. Sometimes people hear this command and they're convinced that this is something that we need to do. Like the ancient Israelites refused to say the name of Yahweh out loud. Uh, in, in fact, substituting Yahweh uh, with Jehovah. But I don't believe that's what he's saying. In fact, uh, the name of the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, uh, most often translating the Hebrew phrase Yahweh, is written some 7,000 times in the Old Testament. We don't need to be superstitious in, by not saying his name, but we cannot misuse it. The Old Testament identifies several ways in which the third commandment can be violated, how it's listed in the Old Testament. Most obvious is to not blaspheme or curse the name of God, which we see in the book of Leviticus, where it says, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. God wanted his name to be revered by his people. Um, but there's more to the commandment than that. It also forbids empty or false oaths. You shall not swear by my name falsely, it says, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. 
we, we take oaths. Even today, we take oaths in the name of God. Some people do this as a matter of emphasis. I, you know, I swear by Jesus that this is true, or I swear God has told me da-da-da-da. Uh, but we do this in more formal situations, don't we? We go to court, and you have to give testimony. What do we do? We put our hand on a Bible, and we swear an oath that what we're going to say is truth. We are, in essence, saying that before God, and by his name, uh, I'm telling you what happened accurately. Uh, the president, when uh, he's inaugurated, uh, the begin his term, uh, I believe they still use the Bible up front. And the Supreme Court justice makes him swear an oath to the Constitution. But because God is invoked, we're taking an oath to him. This is something God said we should not do if we don't plan to keep our word. Jesus goes even further in the New Testament when he says, just let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. Don't take an oath at all if you can help it because the downside of this is so consequential for the person who takes that oath in the name of the Lord and does not fulfill it that it just simply is not worth the risk. Hosea uh, chapter 10 says, they utter mere words with empty oaths. They make covenants. God's own people, his covenant people who were supposed to live by the promises that he made to them and they made to him uh, when they came in to make their sacrifice, when they came in to offer up worship, they didn't do so with clean hands. They didn't do so with pure hearts. They uttered empty oaths. When you make a declaration swearing by God's name, it must not be a false promise according to this third commandment, right? Um, also, it encompasses the idea of not letting there be false visions, false claims that speak on God's behalf. For such prophets prophesy lies. The word says, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed I have dreamed. Uh, how long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies? And who prophesied the deceit of their own heart? Who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal? Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak faithfully. So, Today, I would see that application being for those of us who preach or teach, and you have that opportunity to share God's words with others. We have to be so careful, don't we? Right? In the New Testament, it says those of us who teach are held at a higher accountability than those who listen, because we are proclaiming, we are saying, thus saith the Lord. And too often, we mix into that truth our own agenda, our own purposes, and people get misled as to what God is really saying. The same thing in the Old Testament. Another way that this third commandment comes to life for the people of Israel was they were not supposed to sacrifice their children uh, in the Lord's name. And you think, well, that's a bizarre commandment. At least I can check one of these off that I haven't done yet today. Well, that's great. It says in Leviticus 18, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. And notice, out of all the things he could say, this is not just to the children, this is not fair to the congregation, this is bringing in a demonic presence into the Lord's house. Uh, no, he says, this profanes the name of God. Uh, 
God is protecting his name. And all of these commandments, they were supposed to be more concerned with God's name and reputation than with their own. They also weren't allowed to touch holy things in an improper way, which would be a command in the Old Testament at least to just the children of Israel, to just the priests, to the Levites. In Leviticus 22, it says, Speak to Aaron and his sons so that they abstain from the holy things of the people of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so they do not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. Almost all of these commands that deal with his name end with his name. I am the Lord. The, the, the priests were not supposed to come into the, the holy of holies. Remember, there were stages of holiness. Everybody could gather in the outer court who was part of the covenant nation. Uh, certain people were allowed to get behind that and into the sacrificial system. Usually the father brought the sacrifice for the family to the Levite, and then he would kill the lamb, kill the goat, uh, tear the uh, turtle dove, whatever the sin offering was. There was a third level that only the priests uh, could minister and to sprinkle blood and do things like that. And then there was the fourth level, which was actually entering into the presence of God. At any one of those stages, if a priest falsely came in and profaned those holy objects, that process, they would experience judgment. Likewise, priests who cut corners in Malachi's day, the last book of the Old Testament, they also were devaluing the name of God by their polluted offerings and cynical heart. It says in Malachi 1, Oh, that there were among you those who had shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. He's basically saying, let's just close the church doors. If you're going to come in here with the wrong attitude, if you're not going to come in here with a pure heart, then I will have no part amongst you. He's not speaking to the non-believers, by the way. He's speaking to God's people. I would rather that the doors be shut than you would come in here and offer up an offering in the wrong way. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations but you profane it when you say that the lord's table is polluted and its fruit that is its food may be despised but you say what a weariness this is and you snort at it says the lord of hosts that's one of my favorite passages in all of the old testament you snort at it i actually spent probably i should admit this 20 minutes doing a Hebrew word study on snort. I thought, where else is this being used? But yes, we shouldn't snort at our offering to God. You bring what has been taken by violence. You have to understand animal husbandry, agriculture, right? If you grew up on a farm or you're associated with a farm, it's saying you're not giving the first fruits of your, of your increase as you should, as a commanded in the Old Testament. You're taking your worst animal, that which is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, that's it, the best he has to give, and then yet switches it and sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations." 
Many ways to violate this third command. When we bring an offering before God, when we put money in the box, when we say, God, this is dedicated to you, what's your heart attitude? What's my heart attitude? Am I giving the change left in my pocket to the Father? Or am I making a point of giving him the first fruits of his increase to me? We need to be in thought when we worship the Lord. All of these things speak to worship. Names are an important thing in the Old Testament. So important. They're precious things. Many of us care very much about our names. Maybe not in our society too much about the first name. Uh, my name is David. I was in uh, first year in kindergarten in school with five other Davids. So uh, most of the time I was not David. I was Little Dave. I was biz, I was, whatever they could name, they hang on me to distinguish me from the other Davids. But I have met people that are very, very much into their last names. Uh, there was a doctor back in my old church. His name was Fitch, his last name. And when I went to visit him in his home, he had a book that had a family crest on it, the word Fitch. In fact, the book I think was called The House of Fitch. And as I looked through it, they had, someone in his family background had traced the lineage of the Fitches all the way from Scotland across the Atlantic when they came and so forth. And then he saw me looking at his book and he proceeded to tell me all about the Fitches. Be careful what you pick up at other people's homes, <laughs> right? And I love history, but I mean, that just went on and on and on. But some people love their names, but I'm telling you, no one cares more about names than the Lord, his name in particular. But throughout the Bible, people are given new names to commemorate significant spiritual progress. We see this all the time. Abram becomes Abraham, Sarai becomes Sarah, Jacob becomes Israel, right? The Galilean Simon, the fisherman, he becomes Peter, the rock. Levi, the tax collector, uh, changes identity, and he becomes Matthew. And even Saul, the Christian hunter, becomes the Apostle Paul. In the book of Revelation, it goes a step further. We're given a glimpse of the truth of what is coming. In Revelation chapter 2, it says that all of us as believers, if we survive, and this is the, the tone of the book of Revelation, if you survive the persecution, if you're able to not uh, give up your faith in the face of suffering, if you can withstand prison and, and business loss and poverty and so forth without wavering in your commitment to the Lord, when you get before God, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. And that's what I'm talking about. I will give some of the hidden manna, or the hidden manna. Well, you know, manna, of course, was the sustenance for the children of Israel in the wilderness for a long time. And even though they seemed to get sick of it after a while, still to have free food every morning, you know, on, as the dew of the grass that they could collect and eat, that God saw to their needs every day, it seems to indicate that we're going to be given hidden sustenance, something that will just fill us, satisfy us like nothing else has. And I will give him a white stone. And there's a name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. 
Each one of us, if we conquer, if we survive, if we're faithful, we will be given a new name. You say, well, that would have been cool at one point. I know I grew up in a Roman Catholic church or an Anglican church or whatever, and I got a baptismal name when I was baptized. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. This is something that reveals your identity. A couple of different guys that I was reading says this new name will indicate these are the things that David went through. These are the things he suffered. These are the things that he overcame. This is his new name before God. I don't know if there will be five or 5,000 or 5 million Davids when I get to heaven, but I will have my one name that he gives me. What a thing to look forward to. Names are indeed powerful things in Scripture. We must not forget that even the Lord Jesus Christ valued the meaning of his name. It says in Isaiah 9, 6, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And what are his names? You know them. Wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. This is an Old Testament prophecy of the coming of the future Messiah. And it's telling us just exactly who he is, identifying him by name. Matthew 1, 21, you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. And of course, if we spoke ancient Aramaic, we would know immediately when we hear the name Jesus that that is the Hebrew uh, transliteration for Yeshua, right? Which means the one who saves. Jesus' very name was salvation. Uh, it's amazing how many people don't pick up on that in his day. Revelation 19 uh, says, The name by which he is called is the word of God referencing Jesus. He is the word of God. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. King of kings, Lord of lords. Jesus bears the names, the real names of his titles on him. Fascinating. If you were to be named for your titles this morning, what would those names be? How would they identify your walk with the Lord? Um, it might be like, for me, pastor or teacher or shepherd. Uh, hopefully it'll be something like that, right? Um, my wife and I have been watching a TV series on PureFlix uh, this last few weeks called The Encounter. I don't know if you've seen that. It was made back in like 2011 or something. But it's just kind of a way. What if Jesus were to show up today? And there's all these different vignettes of Jesus showing up at work, in the military, wherever we live, our normal everyday lives. And one thing that seems to be a common thread through this is that people begin to realize that this man that they're talking with is something more special than just a wise counselor or a helpful person. He seems to be saying that he is God. And so there's always that point in the episode where they say, who, do you, who, who are you? And Jesus, just as when he was here, the, the script writers always have him say, who do you say that I am? Pregnant sentence, isn't it? Who do you say that I am? Jesus said that he was the I am, right? He is the great I am, just like God said to Moses at the burning bush in the book of Exodus. So Jesus also repeats that. But he's also asking us, to I, us those who are talking to him, to identify him. Who do you think that I am? We struggle with our true identity, don't we, in Christ. 
we, even as Christians, sometimes we get way off track as to exactly who are we in him. But what we need to know is that his name, that wonderful counselor, the word of God, you know, king of kings, all those things. He has said to his father, look at them. I've adopted them. They're part of my family. I want them to have my name. Uh, being adopted is an amazing thing. You get to go before a court, a, a true justice situation, and they legally change your name. You were once foster, now you're this. Wow. When we come to Christ in salvation, same thing happens. You were once David, now you're this. I want you to have my name. Names are so important. So how do we take the name of God as an expression of reality and not use it in vain? Are we guilty of giving meaning to God's name by the way we live? That's something that we have to check in our hearts. But the Bible seems to say, absolutely, honor his name. Be careful not to violate it in any way. Jesus in Matthew 15 in the Gospels quotes Isaiah from the Old Testament when he says, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching me as, excuse me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This is about worship, how we handle God's name. He also says, do everything that you do to the glory of God. In Colossians 3, whatever you do, do in word or deed, do everything in the name of Jesus. As Christians, we can't escape this identity. Like it or not, too hard, too bad. When you take the name of Christ upon yourself and you identify as a Christian, you can't go backwards. You may try. You may make some slip-ups and inadvertently belie the name that you have been given. But it's just like someone who's been adopted who after some time says, I don't want to be part of this family anymore. I've had it. I want to be, go back to the way it was. You mean before when your family couldn't take care of you, when you'd had nothing but heartache and pain, you've gotten so used to the blessings of this new family, you want to get rid of that name and go back to the way it was? Well, we do that when we live our Christian life, when we're not living it for God. Think about our worship. Jesus says there can be two things in this verse that can cause our worship of God to be in vain. First of all, he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The heart is emptied of affection for God, for his name. We get so used to love and admiration and reverence, walking in Christian circles. How many times have I seen young people, when I was a youth pastor especially, who say, been there, done that. I grew up in the church. I understand everything there is about what God has to offer. It's not enough. I want to go live for the world. I talked to a young man who was on his way to the University of Northern Iowa. And up there at the time, at least, they had some dynamic Christian ministries on campus. And he took me aside and said, the reason I transferred from there to the University of Iowa is because I felt like I was missing out. I wasn't getting the true college experience. And all I could say to him is, oh, you know, you're crazy. 
You want to live what you were basically saying is you want to live more like the world. I want to have fun. I want to do those things that the rest of the world gets to do. I want to be outside of the range of the sight of my parents and my family, and I just want to go have fun. And I tried to talk to them and say there's a price tag for that, least of which are the consequences of sin in our daily lives. The majority consequence is what happens to us in front of the Father. We cannot be those that just honor our commitment to Christ with our lips. Secondly, the thing that makes our worship in vain, according to Matthew 15, is it says that they worship me, but they're teaching as doctrines the commandments of, of men. Word statements about God that have been emptied of God's truth. When we come in here, and we go through the confession of sin and the communion and the Lord's Prayer and all the things that we do. Where's your heart? Where's my heart? Are we ready to do that? Or are we thinking about, you know, what's going on in the rest of our life? God expects when we come in here and we're going to worship him that our hearts are pure. When the heart is emptied, this is Kevin DeYoung is saying this, of affections for God and words are emptied of the truth of God, uh, they become pointless and futile. In other words, they're in vain. Therefore, to take the name of God in vain is to take up some expression of God's reality into our thoughts or emotions or words or actions when the truth of God has gone out of them and true affections for God are missing. It's not about cuss words. When you read this commandment, too often people say, well, to not take the Lord, Lord's name in vain just means I have to avoid saying some bad things. I can't use God, Jesus, uh, in a way that just kind of makes my swearing emphatic, right? Uh, that's just not what it's talking about. You know, the oh my God statement that is so popular today. You get a text saying, OMG, I lost my hairbrush. OMG, I just was in a car accident. OMG, whatever. God is listening. God knows all. It's not just about that, but it certainly includes that. That's a kindergarten-level way of looking at this commandment. It's really about his name. Now let's look back in Deuteronomy at these first three commands that we've gone through in the last couple of weeks. They're all super important, right? God is jealous for his name. We talked about that last week. That word jealousy is passionate. He's passionate for the way that you serve him, how you see him, and so forth. The, the book of Psalms says, For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Take your name, Lord, and let it be honored. Uh, Psalm 79, deliver us and atone for our sins. For what? Again, for your namesake. Psalm 106, he saved them. Why? For his name's sake. God wanted people to see Israel and they wanted immediately the name of God to come to the lips of the people that lived amongst them or around them. When we walk in this world as Christians, do people think about Jesus when they see you? Does the first thing that comes to their mind, oh, here comes Dave. Uh, he's such a big sarcastic joker. True. But do I want that to be the first thing that people think about? Or do I want them to think about the fact that I have Jesus in my heart, that my life has changed because of him. That should be our goal. That's what God is saying. I want for my people 
the, the nation of Israel and, and the church to have as a reputation is the name of Jesus, right? If you violate these commandments, these first three, you show that you hate me. That's what he said. We talked about this last week. All three of these commands hinge upon the penalty that is listed after the second command, that if you hate me, I will punish you to the third and fourth generation. Remember talking about that? And if you love me, I will bless you to the thousands. Now, being the nerd that I am, I decided to go online and look up what exactly is a generation? How long is that? And uh, I looked under, not a Christian source, but a science, uh, online science book. And the guy was saying, well, we used to measure between the dad and the son. That was one generation. And if you do that, there are four generations per 100 years, right? Roughly 25 years uh, for a generation. However, uh, science has decided that women live longer than men. So they're measuring between women, mothers, and daughters. And that actually puts three generations per 100 years. So if we use that calculation to get back to the time of Jesus, we're only talking 60 generations, right? To get back to the time of Moses when this is written, we're talking 150 generations. And yet God says, I will bless you to the thousands. That just boggles the minds. Now, I believe that Moses is specifically trying to use a little bit of hyperbole here. He is saying it's so amazing, it's so vast, uh, his blessing permeates so far, you can't believe it. Now, Scripture repeatedly says, and we said this last week, that the child is not responsible for the sin of the father. So when he says, I will punish you to the third or fourth generation, uh, I think he's specifically saying that those who live in, under your patronage as a dad, you are influencing or taking a living life where the blessing of God has been taken away from the rest of your family, but that could change. Each generation is a new generation. Well, how about the thousands? You say, well, how can it last a thousand? What if my great, great, great grandson decides to turn his back on my faith, on my expression of the way I love God? How can the God's promise be true then? I think I've shared with many of you uh, that I, I come from a non-Christian background. My family didn't necessarily walk with God. Uh, we just didn't ever go to church, nothing like that. However, as time has gone on, I, I remember back to when my brother and I first became believers, and we came home to Eagle Grove, Iowa, where my grandma lived, and we came in the door, and we were so excited about what Jesus had done that we told everybody, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins. Uh, to be honest, uh, several of them left the room when we started talking. They just didn't want to hear about it. Others were willing to argue with us. I mean, after all, we were just kids, well-intentioned, but not the brightest guys in the world. And so they were willing to mix it up with us a little bit. Uh, I remember one of my uncles saying, well, Dave, you obviously know more about the Word of God. And I'm thinking, I've only been a Christian for like two months. You know, how can I know more about the Word of God than a 50-year-old man? But I knew what he meant. You know, when I look back on it, they were just saying, You're, this is great, we hope this keeps you out of trouble but it's not for us. Then time goes on, and you get older. And I look around at that next generation, my brother and I, my cousins, 
I can't tell you how many of those people are believers in Christ today. Uh, several of us are in the ministry. How did that happen? They didn't get this at home. And then Iona and I have been talking, and we realized that my great-grandmother grew up in Tyler, Texas. She, as a young, young girl, uh, got to know a peddler from north-central Iowa. He farmed all summer, but in the winter, he would bring his wagon of goods, his iron skillets, his bags of flour, his blankets, and so forth, and travel through East Texas, Alabama, Mississippi, and so forth, selling his goods. And on one of these trips, he met Amy. And Amy lived just outside of Tyler on a farm. And it wasn't too long till he asked her father if he could marry her and take her away. She went back to Iowa with him. Now, I don't know her. I've never met her, right? But she is kind of that person, the only person that I can identify in our family structure that may have known the Lord. Uh, my mom talks about all the time that when you were around her grandma, Amy, you didn't play cards, you didn't smoke, you didn't swear, you didn't drink. Her kids are incredibly moral people. Even though they weren't believers, they had strong work ethic. Uh, they didn't steal. They didn't like the things that happened with the rest of the world. My, I worked at Northwestern Bell Phone Company right out of high school, and my mom had been there for 30-some years working. And I soon learned from other people that she had a tremendous reputation for being scrupulous. If someone called in and said, we're sick today, uh, my mom would be somewhat you know, dismissive of that. Well, I've come to work when I was sick. She only missed two days of work in her 37 years of working there. Um, I started accidentally, and it was truly an accident, taking pins home from the phone company. And unfortunately for me, they're all marked with Northwestern Bell, Northwestern Bell. And I, pretty soon I had a jar on my dresser full of pins. And she was like, where are you getting those? And it was part of the job I had. I just put it in my pocket and I didn't even think twice about it. That's stealing. Just clear cut, that is stealing. Where did she get these ethics? Where did she get this morality? My con I'm convinced that Amy from Texas was probably a believer in Christ. She was the one that pushed the family to go to church at the local Methodist church in Eagle Grove. She was the one, I think, that kept the family on the straight and narrow. But she didn't communicate the gospel. Somehow that got missed. But I think she prayed. I think she prayed like a crazy woman for the rest of the family. And while that initial generation didn't seem to have an understanding, her grandkids didn't have an understanding of the gospel, I think it was the great work of God because of her faithfulness that her great-grandchildren turned to the Lord. I, I could be wrong. God might set me straight on that someday. But we didn't lead all these other cousins to Christ. They came to Christ in different ways. My aunts and uncles who became Christians didn't come to Christ through me. They came in different ways. I think it was the powerful, effective prayer. I think it was the promise that we see here in these first three commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make a graven image of me. You shall not use my name in vain. I think my great-grandmother followed that. And I think it was her prayers for us that have made the gospel come alive in our family. 
I hope that's the case. God's name should be honored in the way that we think, speak, and live. It's not just about cussing, but it's about these things that we have talked about this morning, not to swear oaths in his name, not to make promises that we don't plan on keeping in his name, to not claim to live by God's teachings, and then do not do so, to not bring God's reputation down in our sinful level to a sinful level in any way as we live our lives, as we speak, and so forth. John Dixon tells the story, and I love this in his book, uh, The Ten Commandments, of the army of Alexander the Great. It's moving across the world. If you remember the story, Alexander led his Macedonian army through uh, the Mediterranean areas, uh, through the Middle East, as we call it today, and even as far as to Persia. And every army that he encountered, he conquered. Uh, the greatest general probably ever in world history. And yet, uh, such a young man. But, as with all armies, they had a problem with desertions. People were just deciding they'd had enough of war. And if they conquered a certain area that seemed like a place that would be good to live, some of the people from his army would just stop and stay there. And in particular, there's the story of one young man who stopped and decided he was going to desert and stay there away from the rest of the army. Now, Alexander had a cotillion of loyal guards whose only job was to go back and search out for the deserters and bring them to justice. And this young man, unfortunately for him, was captured. And he was brought before Alexander and he was pronounced to be a deserter. Now, typically, if you made it that far, Alexander had no problem with saying, justice will be done, and you'd be dispatched. You would be killed immediately. But on this day, for whatever reason, Alexander decided to talk to him and said, give me your story. What, it, what is it? Why did you leave? And so forth. And then he said, I'm curious. What is your name? And the young man said, my name is Alexander just like yours. And Alexander thought for a while, and then he let his guards know and say, let this man go. If he wants to desert, we'll just let him go. And as the young man turned to walk away from the court, Alexander the Great called to him and said, young man, either change your life or change your name. Because he didn't want him walking around with that same name if he was going to be a deserter, disloyal to his friends, not part of the program. Change your life or change your name. If we're going to say that we're Christians and then we're not going to live the life, take the cross off your neck. Put the Bible back on the shelf. Change your life or change your name. Live as you would someday report to Jesus, not as a deserter, but as a loyal follower, as a person who has carried out his commands throughout your life. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for your word. I thank you, Father, for your command to honor you in everything that we do. We will have no other gods before you. We will not try to represent you in any physical way. And we certainly will not live our lives in a way that would bring ill repute, despair, anger 
at your name. Father, when people see us and we have made it clear that we are Christians, may they think that the first time they see us is, ah, here comes that guy who knows Jesus. Uh, That is our challenge. That is our commission. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to do that. In Jesus' name.